Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Welcome bookends to another instalment in our debut spotlight series, where we shine the light on the freshest authors and their work. Today we have the privilege to share with you the debut novel, Happy, an ingenious and daringly cinematic story about a young man who is not only searching for himself, but romance, art and a vivid life. The trouble is, Happy learns that the life of an immigrant may not always lead to freedom. Beautiful, heartbreaking and passionate, a truly unique debut. Selena Baljit Basra is a writer and curator based in Berlin. She studied art history in a global context at the Free University of Berlin and has since worked with Berlin Biennale Gallery in turn, Nature Mort Deli and other institutions at local and international level. Her residencies include stays with Kochi Biennale and Shanghai Curators Lab and she was awarded both curatorial and literary research scholarships from the Berlin Senate. She's a founder of the Department of Love, a curatorial collective, and her innovative debut novel, Happy, will be published by Wildfire on the 14th of November. Selena, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. Can't wait to chat with you. We are so happy to have you, and uh, forgive the pun. And I have just said that I knew I was going to butcher many pronunciations in the introduction, so let's hope that I'm successful for the rest of the conversation with with not messing anything up, but we will we will see. Um, just to quickly flag to our listeners, my I don't have a microphone today, so the sound may be a little bit different today, but we are hoping that it will be as clear as usual, maybe not so much, but we hope so. And um, I'm sure this will be a great conversation anyway, so I'm sure you'll all enjoy. And uh, Lydia, do you wanna kick us off with our favorite question? Absolutely. So we always ask our authors when they come on, um, what are you currently reading? So right now I'm reading, I always read many books at once, but uh, I'm uh, reading Olga Tokarczuk, uh, Flights. And you know, the mispronunciation, it goes for me as well. I'm, you know, quite heavy on it, especially it's interesting sometimes when you've only read things and never heard them being said out loud. <laughs> That's just a given <laughs> so flights I love I've only started reading it after I finished the editing process of the novel um but I was so happy to discover it because of the sort of scattered um broken up structure in little you know episodes and also always very fond of an author who also imbues knowledge so you have these little um paragraphs that are almost like an entry in a dictionary or you know you learn a lot and then she takes you on these journeys and thinking about our life in flight basically um so it's an ingenious novel of course I mean and also I've just started reading do you remember being born by Sean Michaels he is a fe- fellow Astro House author and it's just I started reading and I you know it's one of those books that really draws you in so this is something I'm enjoying right now. And it's about a poet, a sort of an aging poet, working with an AI sort of machine. So yeah, both of those books I uh, enjoy immensely so far. I just finished 
the flights. <laughs> Who's the um, first book you mentioned? Who was that by? Oh, Olga Tokarczuk. <laughs> ah, okay. I'm so sorry. I'm, I, you know, I can send you the name after, so maybe someone can pronounce it in the correct way. <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me I'm glad it's not just me no it's me too (laughs) the listeners will have so much fun (laughs) (laughs) no they both sound great and I would love to know like what is your reading uh, like during your writing process are you able to read whilst you're writing or do you need to kind of have a break from the books whilst you focus on your own book Yeah, it's interesting. I do think it can happen if a book really draws you in, that you start like living in the language and the world of the book. And then when you're writing or editing, you subconsciously still continue to live in, like, I don't know whether that makes sense. But sometimes it's good to have a clear mind from other literary works and maybe just read other types of writing. Like, as I said, very keen on I mean, my character, Happy, is sort of like a professional Googler. So he likes, you know, a sort of dangerous half knowledge, maybe, of things where you sort of research a lot, but never go into depth. But, you know, I like about to read about other subjects while I'm writing. It's, it's sometimes inspiring to look at a piece of video art or, you know, uh, watch a movie, a song, of course. So all these other kinds of media to surround you. Um, a smell. Oh, smells are so important uh, to me that can really be inspiring be outside take a walk so yeah sometimes good to take a pause (laughs) from reading too much when you're writing I love that that's like a whole sensory writing experience that's beautiful now how we usually start off our debut spotlight episodes is by asking what your experience has been like as a debut author so could you talk us through what it's been like for you in writing your first book and the lead up to it being published Of course. Yeah. It was sort of a whirlwind after, I do think that the idea for happy or the initial spark sort of came to me when I was still a kid or a teenager, like it, it it was percolating for many years and, you know, there are lots of first drafts hidden away on old hard drives. So there is a whole constellation of references that, you know, went into it, but I only found his voice truly like maybe five years ago uh, or four years ago when I then started writing this version of the book sort of in a sort of very sort of energetic sort of push (laughs) and it was very good that I had a deadline like the birth of my daughter uh, was sort of the deadline to uh, finish the first draft and then I was very lucky that the the book got um, sold a few weeks after I uh, gave birth but then the editing process was quite intense so that was basically the first year of my of my kid so yeah it was it was amazing to finally after so many years of always writing working in the art world to find the courage to you know get my writing out and um, sort of be able to share it with people and think okay now you know I'm there after maybe 20 years of you know thinking about that story so it's been a long time in the making but then it happened very quickly um and um I was so you know lucky and privileged to have an amazing author by my side Deborah Deborah Dimas after house and um to then have an intense editing process to to bring this novel into shape uh, a process that I also enjoyed um so parts were hard of course and <laughs> lots of uh, working 
at 5 a.m. Uh, when it was still dark in Berlin winter and um, my partner was taking care of my daughter. <laughs> it was all a bit crazy. But uh, from the beginning, I had my own space. You know, I was reclaiming my own space again with this book, which, you know, two, two wonderful things happening at the same time. And of course, you learn about a lot of things about publishing as you go. I was so naive or, you know, not very informed about many things uh, because, you know, I've worked for many years in the art world and then I got a quick crash course in publishing and how it works and that I had really great people by my side, my agent, uh, Alexander Roybert and the amazing editor and people at Astra House were really wonderful. So I was lucky and I mean, it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> you've essentially birthed two babies at once in one go because <laughs> you've conceived this this book <laughs> and you've had a child at the same time I think that's a pretty I'd be bragging about that a lot more than you <laughs> you're very humble about it I mean <laughs> as far as flexes go like that is the biggest flex I've ever heard like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh maybe I should collect more I need to learn yeah. that that's another thing you know when you have to sort of talk about this thing you that you made and then I'm so used in helping other people burst their art babies and talk about those you know as a curator but then you know doing it for myself it's the hardest thing <laughs> and um, yeah it's a totally different but also immensely beautiful you know mm -hmm. that there are suddenly other people to take care of and help you bring this out into the world because you do need people to bring it out into the world and yeah and that was also beautiful <laughs> and empowering and that's incredible I mean hats off to you and, and me and Lydia <laughs> me and Lydia always use the phrase it takes a village so you know clearly that has you know been the case with you but I think that's a huge achievement to have done those things in the same in the same I don't know was it in the same set of months like I was gonna say yeah, year, yeah. but it feels like yeah. it was a bit a bit tighter than that time frame. Yeah, definitely definitely it was crazy and intense and I'm only starting to wrap my hand around head around it now that publish uh, like pub date is coming uh, up so quickly uh, or you know that um it is it was crazy but also beautiful so moving on to your book as I mentioned in the intro, it is very much a book that has a lot of light and shade within it. And it tackles very difficult subjects and themes, but with this brilliantly hysterically funny side as well. What was it like for you to try and balance the tone of the book? I think that there was never a moment when I thought, oh, I, I you know, um, that I'm trying to balance the tones. It really happened in the writing process and then the editing, of course, that somehow in trying to grapple with a subject, which at times um, or in general is so dark, I naturally always found my way into this balance. It happened really organically. And as I said, even if the writing process was sort of condensed over maybe two, three years, it, it took, you know, it took a long time. It was a long time in the making to bring the thought process um, and the threads of this book together. And so I feel often when talking about things that are hard to talk about, I sort of, this is the way that I end up finding, this is the voices I end up, you know, going into the balance be between light and dark. Yeah, so this is how it happened. It happened very organically and made sense to me, uh, at least, while writing it. 
because I had a lot of fun writing this book. It was a joy to write. But then, of course, some parts took time to work through beforehand. I, I think you can definitely feel your joy of writing in the novel it fe- it, it has this um and it's it's difficult to describe to bookends just pick the book up and read it because you'll know what I mean as soon as you read it but it has this essence of sort of optimism throughout despite the fact that there's a lot of of difficult things that happen in the book and I genuinely think that you do that with such skill like because it's it's so difficult I think to get that tone right and the fact that you've done it instinctually is just even better <laughs> like of course <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you so much I really it, it, I'm so happy that it comes across because you're so far in there that you never know how it might really transport or mm-hmm. you know appear or feel to the reader in the end and I never set out to say oh I want to find a happy way to communicate a hard sort of a, a dark subject that was never my approach um, somehow but also to say that often we as people if we encounter hardship if we encounter things that are hard to process or maybe impossible to ever process it it depends on your character that sometimes the instinct is to you get used to anything really the most the most insane things as a human being and to find a way to survive sometimes does mean to put on a smile and that's not always healthy it can be a coping mechanism and I don't think you know sometimes you're allowed to escape I remember there was an older relative of my family who told my parents she's reading too much as a kid like she's you know she's not living in real life she I don't think she's living in the real world and I do think it's sometimes okay to to do that Mm. (laughs) and sometimes it's not an unhealthy way to deal with things that are happening to you around you of course in the end it's all about the balance and sometimes you have to face the facts but then yeah I think that's the the way of a lot of artists and creatives I mean me and Lydia are both actors um, and we both write as well so I think you know we've spent most of our lives with our heads in books and living in in our own imaginations you know and our imaginations do tend to run away with themselves <laughs> at times but I think you know that's just the sign I think that's a really beautiful thing and it's something to treasure is like that's just a part of you is is you know your big imagination and and you really get a sense of that with with your protagonist happy because he might be experiencing these really awful things but we don't necessarily find out about them straight away because he's kind of he's so ambitious and he's got this huge imagination and he's um telling us about all these exciting stories and all these exciting different things rather than immediately just um settling on you know, the bad, if that makes any sense. So I really loved the way that you explored that. And I think it was almost kind of, I I don't know, I hope you take this as a compliment because it's meant as one, but it's almost, you know, like Shakespearean in the sense that it has these real big moments of, of comedy with this character, but then we also have this real tragedy and I thought, you know, as Lydia said, you you manage this balance so perfectly. I, and I'm I'm trying so hard not to give anything away. <laughs> but we, <laughs> but we, we have these moments where, you know, we're laughing and it's it's very playful and we're experiencing sort of these joyful moments with him and he's in his own little world. And then you really kind of hit us with these moments of like, it's almost like a gut punch and you're like, oh my gosh, like, 
that's that's awful and I'm not gonna you know say what I'm talking about because people just need to read this for themselves but I just think as Lydia said you know it takes great talent to be able to do that so sorry we're just going to shower you with compliments for this episode that's it thank you so much I love it I love it <laughs> um, I'm eating it all up it's like I'm <laughs> bathing in it over here <laughs> um, but I think it is also hard to talk about your book without talking about the structure and um, I think we both really want to hear you speak about that because it is structured in this totally unique way and it's split into six parts if we include the prologue and the epilogue. And it's also made up of these like many different sections in each part um, and each have titles and these sections are totally different in style and format. You know, some of them are like a sort of family tree and then some are like, almost written as as like lyrical and then some parts are like conversations or scripts that that he's writing you know they're all very different things so could you kind of talk us through how you sort of curated that so I think that the premise was once I found uh, Happy's voice and I really got into the writing process I I really felt that some stories are best told in a scattered way because I don't think, I don't believe in this big linear narrative that is a whole and complete and is written by a male author who has endless amounts of time and just, you know. So I do feel there's something about um, different kinds of voices. May they be female or otherwise silenced in history. May they be educated in a different way. May they be speaking a different language. May they have only chunks of time to dedicate to whatever they want to dedicate their art to so sometimes yeah I do feel that especially stories of migration or flight basically people on the move they do maybe tell their stories in a different way and I felt as if we as as if the readers might encounter a big bag of notes and stories and songs and basically yeah whatever happy produced and also to incorporate different voices to sort of break up Happy's wide-eyed perspective of the world with voices from his family or colleagues, workmates, and the objects he touches, you know, to let a tree speak. Yeah, I'm not sure how to sort of uh, go more into it without sort of saying too much. But um, yeah, so um, there was something that really, for me, uh, helped me you know, tell the story and also gave me so much joy in writing it. Yeah, you really get a sense of that. And I don't think it, you know, it gives too much away to say, you know, the way that the book is structured and the things that sort of narrate the book. I was really intrigued, actually, by your use of personification and this almost like humanization of objects. And and I don't know, because you just said you're worried about giving too much away. So I'm now worried is that question given too much away? Do you not want to go into that? No, I'd love to. Please, okay, amazing. please break up the structure. <laughs> so you have these, these moments where obviously we've spoken about how these parts and sections in the book are very different in formatting. And we have these moments where objects are almost narrators. So we have like flower that narrates as in the the powdered flower not a plant and we have luggage that narrates and then we also have things as big as Europe as a narrator 
what drew you to to using these specific objects and, and things and places as narrators? I've been thinking about it too. And something that probably wasn't clear to me is the fact that I am, I'm, you know, by training an art historian, a curator, I work with, you know, artworks, objects, not all of them are object-based. In fact, most of my focus is on art that is performative situation or video art, but still there's maybe a fascination with, I think the starting point or the originary idea was, I think I was flying back from, from Kochi in 2019 after a workshop at Kuchi Biennale and um, I got lost in on a stopover in Dubai airport and I think I started making notes for this story told from a perspective of a bag or just you know so this is what then you know became I'm a bag which is one of the chapters or short vignettes of the book and I have been thinking about what's the most essential thing you need because a lot of the book is also about what are the essential things to make up a home and sometimes your home is just a bag and not even that maybe it's a plastic bag filled with some essential things and maybe that's just it and that's what you then unpack if you are in a transient or temporary home uh, or room you know if you're lucky and so the bag which carries the essential objects is sort of one central motive and then from then on I unfolded it and then there's a necklace that um, it was actually I think in the same workshop in Kuchi um, an art historian sort of talked to us about a necklace that after partition has been split between India and Pakistan so two museums now hold two halves of this necklace that is age old um, in the you know made of the culture of Mohenjo-Daro um, and then split and made into two new necklaces and so I just, all these objects, like a bag of flour, um, which you can then use to make rotis or bread, um, make up sort of happy world. And they're all sort of, some are essential, some are beautiful, but they, you know, they're things you touch, things you use. And that sort of also make up a character um, in my view. So that's why I sort of went into it and also had fun with it. But yeah, they're important voices to contribute to the whole book in the end. Yeah, and I it, it took me a moment when I first started reading it, which shows that maybe I read too much. Maybe I don't read as much like non-linear or I, I don't even think it's that. It's, this felt far more like abstract than the usual things that I go towards. Would that be the right word to use, Lydia? I would definitely say that it that is the correct like that that it's for me it felt very much um sort of I'm a big fan of like absurdist theatre mm. and theatre of the absurd and a lot of the times that it's a way of kind of making you think about the subject in a different way and I think that it's really interesting the way that you did it because you do feel like you're you're piecing together his life in your you are in in essence you are the creator because you are going around and saying okay well this is this and then that's that and you and you come to the conclusion yourself which I think is really interesting mm-hmm. yeah I would say that was the right word thank you Lydia has to be my dictionary forever so <laughs> <laughs> but when I when I first read the parts of the books that were narrated by objects I it really threw me for a second and I was like oh okay well like is this is this happy and how he feels and I think you know it was so interesting to sort of find those parallels between 
how we feel as living beings to like how would like to imagine what an object might feel like because we never really consider that so I found that really interesting to sort of find those parallels and I think you know as Lydia said before like it has this sort of lightness to it and I think that sort of brought that in it just it just made it feel all the more playful for me and yeah I really enjoyed that so thank you That's so lovely to hear. And yeah, I do think it can be both. It can be an additional voice or an extension of Happy's voice or as mm-hmm. if he had written it, but it can also be just, I don't know, if you, you know, old movies, there's like US movies from the 50s, 60s, but also maybe Indian cinema, um, like in, if two people kiss or have sex and then you see an image of two trains crashing into each other or like fruits or a fountain, you know, there's all things that in cinema um, symbolize or enhance or support Mm. the story and show what cannot be shown um, or the blanks, fill in the blanks. So maybe that's also something like that. (laughs) So are are you quite drawn to to reading books like this? And I say this because we are, me and Lydia are so nosy because we love our books and we love reading so much. Um, So from the perspective of a reader, are these the kind of books that you're drawn towards or is this like you've not seen this type of book before so you wanted to write it yourself? Well, of course, in the beginning, I also worried about some aspects like will I, you know, lose readers if I have these um, sort of the structure as I in the end wrote it. And I think there are... so. Definitely, there are books that are structured in in a way that you have these, um, you know, shorter episodes. And I I do think part of it speaks to our current attention span, you know, in the age we live. So something about it can be even sort of nice to read and and sort of to have with you on the go as you're traveling. Or, But then um, when I read Olga Tokarczuk, I was really happy that I only read it after because that was, you know, for me, a good thing. Uh, I needed to sort of conceive of happy as, as my own thing and not, you know, try to copy another structure, which I really didn't do. Um, it was also a way for me to, of course, as someone who, you know, was trying to write your first novel, <laughs> um, to fit yourself into, you know, to, to give yourself lots of new beginnings to always get into it with fresh energy and a fresh eye and not to get stuck and but to 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 still feel the love <laughs> throughout the book and, and keep it going, keep the energy, um, which for me was very important. So yeah, that was maybe another reason. <laughs> well, you definitely do that, let me tell you, because it's just such a wonderful book. And one of the kind of things that I think is going to stick with me for a long time is just the character of Happy and his personality because I it, you immediately warm to him he's so endearing um and he lives in this just this incredible imaginary world um you know and so un, unapologetically which I think is just fantastic could you tell us a bit more you we've touched on it a little bit but a bit more about finding his voice and kind of why he is the way he is was it difficult to develop was it something that just appeared in your head like magic please tell us more of course um so happy is an entirely fictional character and even if the underlying facts are very real if some of the trajectories we encounter in the book you know are loosely based on real stories he's a fictional character and the 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 starting point, like the moment that I finally found an entry into this book was in finding his voice. And that was when I wrote 
the cover letter, the letter of application, which is the prologue of the book. And I think all the years before, I tried to write it from, you know, not the first person's view, but another perspective, and to allow myself to fully get into happy shoes. And then it really, the, the character then sort of happened. And, and of course, you know, there might be chunks of me in there. And it's your first, in your first book, I think it happens. Uh, but he really then just sort of poured out of me after years of trying to find this voice. And then I don't know how else to explain it. Maybe there was a bit of magic. <laughs> and I think there's also an element of he's a very young boy when we first meet him. And I think there's a sense of, you know, we don't realise some of the, um, <laughs> try not to give anything away, it's so difficult. Uh, we don't realise certain things are happening because of this kind of endearing naivety about him. You know, I don't even know if he sometimes realises like how bad a situation is. So we're almost sort of realising that with him or realising it with the people around him. So was that a conscious choice that you wanted him to be a young boy? Or did again, was it just his voice just came to you and you were like, OK, we're at this age? Yeah, I think there's, of course, some grounding in the realities that, you know, if, even if you look, look at the statistics, who's, you know, migrating to, to Italy in the Punjabi community, it sort of takes place around the 2010 mark, you know, at that time and since the 90s. And of course, the North Indian communities in Italy are evolving, building lives, new generations, you know. So it's it's all in a flow and there's never one story that is a true story of non-resident Indians or, you know, North Indians migrating to Europe. There's a million different stories. And so it's never, I, I, I wanted to be very careful never to seem like this is one true story of, you know, a Punjabi migrating to Italy in an undocumented way, like not by the books. And that, you know, it had to be a male voice because sort of that, you know, it, it mostly is sort of young men, you know, migrating to to Italy to work. And then a majority is sort of working in the food industry and um, in the back of restaurant kitchens in, in Rome. And yeah, so finding the voice definitely had a lot of groundings and real life stories and research and then a lot of that, it's not, it's not hidden. It can be, you know, you just have to Google and you can find a lot of, you can find documentaries, you can find news articles, you can find research, you can find activists working on this topic. And some aspects of it, of course, you will never gain full entry because, mm -hmm. you know, I once tried speaking to someone, an Italian activist working on that in um, an Italian university context and he really had to be quite mindful of his security. And that was something where I was also, wow, okay, um, this is a serious matter because the structures are linked to sort of criminal syndicates. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not unique to Italy. You know, it's, it's happening, you, you know. If you look at the UK, if you look at Germany, if you look at the North America, sort of that the food industry or the, the wonderful things we can buy in supermarkets, the cheap radishes, the things we buy at Lidl, you know, are possible for us to be affordable because the structures in which the people producing those uh, work mm -hmm. are criminal, are wildly underpaid. Sort of. And then, of course, there are variations. 
there might be structures where it it is the the, the quality of life, the quality of the, the conditions of work are better and maybe slightly improving. You know, that's it's very important to say that it's not just one truth, but largely this is what we're looking at. And you just have to look at numbers and statistics. So this is not unique to Italy. This is not unique to the North um, Indian community from the rural context, you know, coming to Italy. So saying that, again, Happy is an entirely fictional character and his character you know this was the way I found I was able to write the story uh, you know in this voice and I do feel that very often if we encounter you can only start a journey by being optimistic you know or there has to be a certain level of optimism about okay this is if it's going to work out it's going to be great and um, this is what it's going to be like and this is why I'm doing it and Mm -hmm. then of course sometimes you uh, live in structures where there's not a choice you know it's um, but we're talking about Definitely, you know, one of the cores of the book is the belief in human mobility as a social right for all. And the fact that with certain passports, you are able to just say, hey, I want to study in Italy. I want to have a year abroad. I want to, you know, have this experience. I want to go there to research. And then with some passports, you can't. And um, this is the basic underlying factor. So, of course, I'm mixing up two things. I'm mixing up an individual who wants to, you know, he has big dreams about being an actor or a writer, um, both things you are, uh, <laughs> and then working in very different structures, which don't allow for that unfolding of creative potential at all. But, you know, I think that also happy in a way is a workplace novel, because it looks at different kind of workplaces and um, structures where the dynamics and scenarios and um, sort of you know, ways of working together are not dissimilar to working in other environments and, you know, things we know we encountered, speaking from our perspectives, living in Berlin or in, you know, in the UK. Yeah. But then some are very unique to his context of uh, working in the food industry in Italy without documents. There's a huge abuse of power at play that you explore in the book. And, you know, I think, you know, you saying it's a workplace novel, you know, it is quite devastating to see the the effects of those working conditions and the impact that has and I think you know thinking about the fact that we were reading this as actors and writers and kind of seeing this young boy wanting the same things you realize you know the amount of privilege that you have as as like a western person as like a white western person you know or a white person living in the western world you know having the privilege to be able to attempt to navigate this industry and and you know have the privilege to do that whereas you know for this young boy you know he he immigrate um, can't even say the word he emigrates to Italy and then he ends up working on this radish farm which isn't what he wants to be doing and then he's completely taken advantage of and he doesn't kind of get the same opportunities that other people would get and I and I was unsure if the but I didn't think it was his imagination but the moment with the audition and he goes into the audition and he's essentially turned away because they're like no you're not you're not what we're looking for and you kind of know as the reader like what is behind those words I did want to ask about the the working conditions and about the the protest in the book and again I'm not going to kind of go into detail on that but essentially working conditions are so bad that workers protest. And I think that's something that we we often see. Was there a particular story that inspired that narrative or was there any particular research you came across that 
that intrigued you that you were like yeah okay I want to include this in the book Definitely. There's many of them. So there's definitely real life stories that are also underlying to this book. And this is why I sort of carried the narrative around with me for so long. They, they formed the, the spark for the book or the, the necessity to talk about it, because I think there are some stories, if they stay with you long enough, there is a certain, and I found it so difficult also for many years too, to try to find a way to, to tell a story that I always felt isn't mine to tell, maybe. But that's why I that's why I needed also to find this form in the end. So they're, they're definitely real life stories that form the basis for the novel and also stories that didn't end happily. But then also others that, you know, found other ways. And I think that's definitely present in the book too with Harbier and how then there are, you know, stories of migration that, you know, take different routes and then continue to grow maybe in the in the new place in different ways and then turn it around, which gives a sort of element of hope to it, but that, you know, also mirrors how it can go very differently. And then there's a lot of research that, you know, you can, you know, as I said, you can find it if you also just try to dig a little, not even that deep, but it's widely available to any reader who's interested in it. Of course, there's the aspect that doing any research that would be on an investigative journalist level, I wasn't able to do because it's just um, these conditions are not, you know, nobody invites you in. (laughs) It's like, that's, you know, that's not part of the deal to be open to that because they have the structures as they are that are criminal. And even trying to talk to people who really work on that and because I really encourage that there are activists who work on that, who have the skill set and who really dig deep and have been working on it for years, trying to change the work structures, the working structures, doing an amazing work, but uh, even it, it wasn't even easy to talk to them. And then on another level, there are stories that are sort of hopeful. And one is an example of Melanese workers uh, in the south of Italy, who after ra- racist in- incidents, there were big protests. And they then afterwards, in a sort of, a sort of turn of story, a turn of events founded their own initiative to you know grow their own vegetables and uh, sell their own yogurt and roman markets so there are stories like these but they're very rare and yeah more often than not uh, they're not happy endings but then it's always evolving so um but then one interesting fact maybe is a gran padano industry so a quintessential italian product uh cheese has been in north indian hands for many years at least when i last sort of looked into it and there are these phenomenons if you look in the UK and if you look in Germany with asparagus so that entire sort of production sectors are in the hands of certain communities and it's something that you might not expect but it's interesting to look at and then see what that means you know not producing your own cheese um, but uh, a different culture's cheese. It's, it's, it's so interesting and I think that one of the parts of the book that I found really striking was the, your use of food and obviously the the food industry plays such a, a big part in in Happy's journey and I think that you also 
have this kind of really great way of making us delve into the sensory world of food and um, you know the sugar rotis I just it, it, honestly it was like mouth-watering I'm like yes and you know you have you have this great way of, of, of kind of making food a real part of his life can you tell us a bit more about why you wanted food specifically to to play a role in the book I think food is, I mean, this is not a new idea, but it's a universal language to us all. It's um, a purveyor of sort of, it also holds an archive of knowledge. There's a lot in food that can speak to us, even if we don't speak the same language. That's a thing. And that if you're far away from home and if you live in a temporary housing of any sorts, but then you get a food from home, like that can really, you can be therapeutic, like it can really help you to, again, remember who you are or try to remember who you are so this is definitely something that is important for the book I mean talking about the food industry then it was a given for me to also have food it's not the main lens for the novel but it is definitely one defining aspect um, to build up the sensory world but also to let happy speak to draw us in and I remember I think it was when I was at a curatorial residency in Shanghai and I think there are moments when I definitely chose having this one bowl of sesame noodles over going to a museum. And that's people, you know, what people might remember about me. And, uh, you know, even if it was my job, I, I, I might choose food over many other things. <laughs> I'm afraid to admit. So, yeah, definitely that was important for the book. And even if not all my writing, you know, is, is, is food centered, it's definitely always there. And I remember, actually, it's interesting because I remember when I was growing up how the books of Enid Blyton, which is interesting to think about for the Indian context. They also, there's a generation for whom the book of Enid, the books of Enid Blyton were very important, but interesting to look at, you know, how, you know, the colonial aspects of, you know, talking about food come in there. And then if you read about a buttered crumpet and then you taste it in real life, how that I've, I've talked to, you know, <laughs> growing up, that Indian growing up in, in India and sort of idealizing these foods. But for me, definitely, um, I was always very fond of food descriptions in, in, in books and used literature and always relished those. So, yeah, that comes into it, too. <laughs> Food is my absolute favourite. I love reading about food. I love eating food. I love everything about food. And Lydia was laughing <laughs> because whenever a book has any form of food descriptions in, I am very happy. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> it's a problem. It's a problem. <laughs> so one of my favourite questions to ask our authors that come on is, what does a typical day, writing day in your life look like? Um, so, oh, I love these questions. That's great. I always hoped that one day I might get asked this question, but now is the day. So I do uh, write in the early, I love to write in the early mornings. I have to trick myself into not starting to properly think, um, but to just, you know, the first coffee rush is very important. Now, more so than ever, and in the past year with a very young, you know, a baby who didn't sleep very well. And so I was, I was constantly in a very strange mode, but maybe that helps also. For me, constraints um, are also good. If I tell myself I have, you know, three whole weeks to just write, that might not be a good thing because then I might, <laughs> if, if, I, if I tell myself, you know, okay, you have one hour now, then you just go. That might, that is a good thing. I like to write fast and furious, even though I might have, you know, notes on the wall and, you know, I like to surround myself with the books 
that I, you know, that are important for the book are objects around me. So definitely, you know, I'm a cluttery person. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a big collector of, of things. So this plays a role, but then I just like to, to go for it and just, just write and let it flow. Music is important. I have a playlist for the novel that, you know, was definitely also important for me to, to work to. And then the early morning. And of course, there were wonderful romantic moments when I was, you know, in Rome writing on a balcony, you know, overlooking Messini or other restaurants that I was writing about or the, the balcony in our old apartment in Berlin. Did it very nooks and crannies where I felt like I was sitting somewhere very sort of apart from the world. Not in cafes or something, no. Uh, so I, I like to create my own spaces around me, however small they might be. So I might you know, then put up a few postcards. And I always did this, even when I, you know, was going on uh, school trips. I remember, I think people made fun of me. They were very ugly lighting. Then I put a, like a scarf over it and then I put up my little postcards. I always created my own little worlds around me. That's, so that's what I do in the book and in my writing process. And of course, like reading all the place roles, I might get up and then read a few pages of the book I'm just reading or a book that isn't, you know, literary, but maybe about the image of, of the character of Europe in, in cinema or in um in theater history, I had a book like that, or and just look, watch a little clip of of a band apart, and then go back into the writing process. I love hearing about people's writing process, and I'm really glad that you said that you have quite a cluttered space because that makes me feel so much better about my cluttered space. I feel like clutter helps me a lot. I like having multiple things about, and it makes me feel makes me feel creative, and it gets the juices flowing. You know. <laughs> It definitely does. It definitely does. And it. I think it's also maybe, I know people who are like, okay, they need these really clean chunks mm. of time and a clean space and really dedicated to it. And, and I really, I think I've wrote a very good a chapter I loved while I was, I was actually walking through a snowstorm with my baby in a carrier. And I was writing on my phone. Like, this is what I did at one point during the editing process. I mean, it wasn't like all the book was written that way, but I think you can. And not to say that everybody has to, you know, it's like great if you have a clean space and clean amounts of time, but sometimes it's a bit messy and that's okay, I feel. Absolutely. I'm speaking for both of us when I say that you've been an absolute joy to chat to. So thank you so much. We are unfortunately going to squeeze in another question because it's our favourite. And that is, have you got any recommendations? Is there anything that you've been enjoying recently that you want to share with our listeners? So maybe it's a good thing because like cinema plays a role in Mm -hmm. the novel. So I think there is a song that Happy dances to, Mother Kali, and uh, it's from the movie Delhi 6, which I watched when I was in Delhi in 2009 as an intern in a gallery. And um, so I have all these romantic memories linked to it. So I, I just love this song and listen to this song, please, and watch the movie mm. if you get a chance about the old Delhi, sort of quarter of Delhi. And then another one is, sort of the, there's a whole constellation of things that were maybe inspirations for me, uh, for Happy. Ushki Ruti is also sort of Indian muralist cinema, Punjabi housewife waiting for her husband at a bus stop every day to deliver a daily lunch to, to sort of balance the contemporary Delhi, Delhi 6 movie. And then I love the works of the video artist Mika Rottenberg, and she always has, has these, like, produces very visceral, bodily 
video art that is also funny and very human and it's about work processes and with a heavy sort of emphasis on female sort of workers in her movies working together to produce really crazy things and one thing you could watch first is dough i think you can watch it online at the at the guggenheim somewhere so maybe look into her work and it really it's a, it's a it's a joy to watch and it's it's fun and it's really great so always inspiring for me <laughs> i knew you'd come through with great recommendations i just knew it <laughs> so thank you for our listeners um happy is published by wildfire as i said before and it will be published on the 14th of the of no, 14th of the november 14th of november in the uk is it going to be published anywhere else as well yeah so the original uh publishing house is astro house in the us so the book yeah. launch events will be sort of there um um, I will have a Berlin book lounge later on. And I hope that at some point I'll also come to the UK for readings. That would be so lovely. Please do, yeah. <laughs> we would love to we would love to come to that as well. Yeah. Um, if you have any events, please let us know. And that is unfortunately all we've got time for. Thank you so much, um, Selena. This has genuinely been such a joy. I'm, I'm so grateful for your time and, and your words. And we both really enjoyed this book. And I think it is definitely unlike anything I've read before. So thank you for coming on A Pair of Bookends. Thank you so much. It was a joy to talk to you. I could go on forever. Uh, you were lovely and amazing. And uh, thank you so much. You can definitely <laughs> come again. <laughs> <laughs> And for our listeners, I'll be popping a link in the show notes to um, pre-order yourselves a copy of Happy. And also for our listeners, can they find you anywhere on social media? Yeah, they can find me on Instagram. I'm I'm on Twitter, but I feel like, you know, I, I'm not really very active there. <laughs> but on Instagram, for sure, yeah. Twitter's <laughs> becoming something else, so we won't speak about I that. I know, <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, and for our listeners, if you want to give us a follow, you can do so at a pair of bookends pod on Instagram and at a pair of bookends on Twitter and TikTok. As always, we will pop links to all of those in the show notes. And thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Selena for joining us. Goodbye.